Hello, beautiful light-filled souls. My name is Trisha Barker, and I'm excited to let you know that the second annual online near-death experience summit is coming up this June 23rd with speakers Dr. Raymond Moody, Lisa Smart, Dr. Jeffrey Long, Dr. Eben Alexander, Karen Newell, Nancy Rines, Howard Storm, Paul Perry, David Ditchfield, Leslie Lupo, Kimberly Clark Sharp, Dr. Tony Chicoria, John Burke, Jose Hernandez, and me, your host. There are plenty of videos to check out ahead of time, but please look at this link and we'd love to have you join. You can get your questions answered by the speakers at this event. And thank you. Thank you so much for your support of my memoir, Angels in the OR, which launched last month. It is such a pleasure to connect with readers and many people have enjoyed the Audible. So if you don't have an Audible subscription, you can have three, 30 days um, for free and get my book that way. But I would love to hear from you and I hope you enjoyed this recording. You can check out these interviews on my YouTube channel. I'm converting many of them over to podcast, but enjoy. Hello, beautiful Lightfold Souls. My name is Trisha Barker, and I am here with Howard Storm. I'm so excited to talk with him because I have read his book and many of these interviews. I've been lucky enough to receive the books after I've interviewed people, but I read Howard Storm's book last year. I even posted a book review about it, and I'd like to start with a question that, you know, it brings us to this point in time, but I loved your intellectual curiosity with the angels. So when you're out of form, you had lots of questions for them. And, you know, that was an interesting part of your near-death experience. And I'm curious now, because we're all at a different point in our lives now, uh, what your questions would be to the angels. Oh, quite different. Because at the time I had, um, basically no religious or theological background whatsoever. So, um, you know, people have asked me all kinds of things like, did you ask them about uh, the Blessed Mother? Did you ask them about the apocalypse, the end times? Did you? It's like, um, and invariably my answer is no, 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 no. And matter of fact, I didn't even know. I mean, I didn't know what, I mean, I didn't know what an apocalypse was. <laughs> so you really didn't have a lot of religious background. I remember you singing the song, Jesus Loves Me, and that was... Yeah, my, my, religious, my religious background was um, basically childhood to the age of like 14 or 15, and then it ended. And I became, um, you know, starting with... Uh, I mean, I started reading philosophy, but, um, you know, people like Nietzsche then led me into existentialism and I became a big uh, devotee of uh, Sartre and Camus and Heidegger and all that stuff. When I say Heidegger, not that I under, ever, ever understood Heidegger, but I, I read him. <laughs> yeah, same here. <laughs> I took those philosophy classes. He's so, pretty obtuse. So back to my question, though, what would you ask them now? Um, you know, Actually, uh, I wouldn't ask him anything. You know why? Uh, why is that? Not because I know everything, but with I know that in heaven, in that proximity to Jesus, God, you have access to everything. 
And so um, I would say something like, uh, where's Paul? I want to talk to him. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) You get right to the point of who you want to speak with and, well, yeah, after, after hanging out with Jesus, I would want to, um, I love Paul because he's so human. Um, I think people are very wrong to um, dislike Paul because of his humanity. It's like, give the guy a break. You know, he had a tough road to hoe. You know, who in the world could begin to imagine that they um, were able to persevere and remain faithful and and actually uh, accomplish what Paul did. I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing story. And I, and I think that um, it's pretty well documented that it's um, a true story, the story of Paul and, you know, wretched man that I am, you know, I do not do those things that I would do, but I do those things that I would not do who can save me from this, you know, um, and it's, it's, it's amazing stuff. I, I love him. And I think he's, um, misunderstood because people don't understand the context of um, the world they live in, which was incredibly hostile, as in they, you know, he was actually murdered. (laughs) You know, he was killed. He was stoned to death outside Athens and had a near-death experience and writes about it. So you didn't have a lot of religious knowledge before your near-death experience. Had you heard I of near- I didn't have any. I didn't have any religious <laughs> Did you have any knowledge of near-death experiences before your near-death experience? In fact, um, I belonged to, uh, when I was a professor at the university, we had a book group that read a book a month and um, just had dinner and lots to drink. I <laughs> <laughs> discussed the book and uh, I, I don't know how it happened but somebody suggested we read Raymond Moody's Life After Life and um, we all came to the conclusion that uh, when a person is in extreme trauma like you know being close to death that the endorphins I mean we understood it endorphins um, go over and you have this um, euphoric blissful delusional experience uh, like a hallucination or basically hallucination and it's a way that the body um copes with extreme trauma and then you die and that um it was absolutely not um, in any way uh proof or evidence of life after death only only proof that people's bodies are capable of providing you know relief from Mm -hmm. trauma and I had, before my near-death experience, I had a lot of smart, um, scientific-minded friends who were very agnostic, and I was agnostic, and that was kind of my belief, too. I had a little bit of a Whitman-esque belief that, you know, maybe we merged with something, you know, that was beautiful uh-huh. and light-filled, but, you know, our, our bodies were just dust at that point. And, yeah, so that was your knowledge of near-death experiences before. I think what's profound is how dramatically you changed after your near-death experiences. And one of my favorite parts of your book is when you go into a church and you're overwhelmed with this joy and this profound praise of God. And you, you know, the way you write about it, it's so cute. You know, it wasn't that type of church where you, you praise that way and it kind of embarrassed your wife at the time. And, and I thought about how I walked into churches after my near-death experience, just random ones. I had this traveling job, 
And there was one that was just so filled with love and light and beauty that I sat on that back row and I was just bawling, you know? Yeah. Oh, I know the feeling. Yeah. Tears were just, and I was like, oh, that light, that love, I miss it. So what were some of the surprising after effects that you didn't write about in your book of when you, because I know we all leave out things in our books, but what really surprised you about how much you had changed? Well, um, several things. One is, is that I assumed that I was now going to be um, a saintly person without the uh, cravings and the desires that I'd had before. It didn't work out that way. Um, I was sick for a very, very long time. I was um, in a hospital on critical list for over a month, and then I had to have more surgery and stuff like that. So it was many, many months of um, recuperation and another surgery, big surgery and stuff. Anyways, but I thought that like when I got well, you know, but by the way, in case anybody's wondering about this, when you're really sick, you have no libido. Um, that it, 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 it just, it takes vacation, you know, like I, so I was like happy about that. I mean, I was like, oh great, I, I no longer have a libido. I no longer have any desire, you know, for that. Um, so you could be totally spiritual in that place. Oh yeah, and yeah. it's like, uh, and I'm thinking about, I gotta quit smoking, you know, so I'm trying to like, um, you know, um, well, it's pretty hard to have c- cigarettes when you're in the hospital, but it's like, you know, still, I was down to one a day. I'm like really having trouble giving that one up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And I had, and I um, lost my desire for alcohol. So I wasn't, uh, I wasn't doing any drink. I mean, I, I, I occasionally have a drink now. I don't have anything against alcohol, but I, I, mean, I used to be a heavy drinker, but now, I'm, but anyways, but I thought, I mean, even more importantly, I thought like I, I would no longer experience anger or envy or jealousy or blah, blah, you know, just all that stuff. And after my experience, I found out, I mean, especially after I got well, like everything that I used to struggle with, I get to struggle with, you know, uh, it all, it all came back and they've all been challenges that I've um, uh, struggled with some successfully, not so, some not so successfully. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point because a lot of people look to near-death experiencers for all these answers, you know, like we're just, you know, we have this direct link to God and I wanted to write a book that was, it humanized me, you know, about yeah. my struggles that I continued to battle on, on many levels. I did, what did change, and I wonder if this changed for you, is I was aware of my connection to the light. So if I did yeah. something that was not in line with what I knew to be good and true, I was hyper aware of it, and I usually self-corrected pretty quickly. Sometimes yes. I was even, I was 22, so sometimes I was even a little rebellious, and I was like, all right, God, I'm taking the night back tonight. You can just uh, leave me alone. <laughs> this is my night. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, I wasn't, I was self-corrected pretty quickly and I didn't have that awareness before. Did you have something like that? Yes. I, um, you know, uh, Martin Luther sent, said, um, sin boldly. Um, and by the, that he meant since we're sinners, um, except the fact that you're a sinner, <laughs> except <laughs> the fact that you sin. well, I sin, but I really regret it. And I'm um, uh, unfortunately aware of it and try and repent of it and do try to not 
repeat that. That's what Jesus told me. He, he told me, he said, you're going to, yeah, sure, you're going to make lots of mistakes and sin a lot. But he said, the thing now is, um, you know, think about it and try not to do it again. Um, you know, see how you can uh, live differently. Um, and that's, that's it. I'm not, I don't try to be too hard on myself. I told someone the other day, I said, like, you know, I aspire to be a vulgar man. No. And why is that? <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, you know, the word vulgar has this uh, negative connotation, but it, it all, you know, it, it just means common, you know, that's all the word. I mean, the word, the root of the word, you know, yeah. the Latin vulgate, it just means the common language, you know, common Latin. Um, I want, I want to be a common man. I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to pretend to be a saint. My aspiration is to be authentic. And I find that to be a real struggle because one of the other things that um, I think is a huge problem with near-death experiencers, and I include myself in that category, and I'll include you in that category too. <laughs> oh no, what's <laughs> coming? It's, it's egotism. Mm. You know, um, and I've been turned off by some near-death experiencers because I found that their, um, their ego was getting in the way of... Uh, their truth and their authenticity. And so um, I, I, when I say I want to be a vulgar man, a common man, I want to be authentic because I, you know, I don't want to shock you because I know you, you love me so much, but um, I am, I am the most common of men. I mean, I'm just a man, you know, and I'm not, you know, and I, and I don't want to pretend to be something else. You know, I, I have, you, you have, and I, you know, and I did the kind of work that you, I was a professor for 20 years and now I'm a pastor. They're ego-enhancing professions. You can't stand up in front of a group of people and pretend to be an authority on something without it finally um, getting to, you know, Kurt Vonnegut once said, let me just get this in, yeah. Kurt Vonnegut once said, we are what we pretend to be. Be careful what you pretend. Mm, I love Kurt Vonnegut. And, yeah, and when, when we pretend to be an authority on something, um, it's dangerous. So that brings me to a question which... And you might disagree with Anita Morjani, but she talks about ego and uh, empathy needing to be in balance. And that's the way she describes it, that we need a healthy ego to protect yeah. ourselves from narcissists and abusers and crazy people in this world who want to harm us. But we also need empathy. And if they're out of balance, you know, if you see someone who's too empathetic, then they get walked on. If you see someone who's too egotistical, they're just a joke, you know, because yeah. you know everyone can look at their ego and see that it's way out of balance. So, yeah, do you agree with her in that sense that we need both, or do you think, oh no, just throw the ego out, be in this total flow? Oh, no, no, I, I think she's absolutely right. But the problem is, I mean, it it sounds simple, but I think that it's uh, not just a daily struggle; it's an hourly struggle. Um, I. You know, because um, we are masters of self-deception. I mean, if there's anything that human beings are good at, it's self-deception, um, which is a, a conceit, it's pride. You know, the, the origin of all sin is that. And that's, that's a classical understanding. That's not, you know, um, my personal revelation, you know, uh, yeah. hubris. Um, going back to the Greeks before Christianity, but anyways, yeah, but so don't we you... have to we have to watch that balance all the time because 
Yeah, I, I agree. We're not, um, we are supposed to be servants of all. The Bible actually says slaves to all. Jesus told us to be slaves to all, which is um, pretty tough to stomach because I'm not, um, you know, you may like me and I like you, but I'm, I'm not actually willing to be your slave. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm sure you're not interested in being my slave, but Jesus tells us to do that. Now we know that what that means is to serve each other and like, um, yeah, well, I, I don't know if you feel this way, but my happiest moments after my near-death experience are moments when I've been in service to others. So I'm sure as a minister, when you lose yourself completely, I mean, the ego is out of it when you're worried about someone's life and, you know, what's happening to them and you're trying to find out ways and resources to help them. I mean, there's no greater feeling on earth to know right. that you contributed to someone's life in a positive way. So yeah, service, I, and I, has that been a part of your life that you've felt yeah, like? And I, and I know that in your profession, you are given ample opportunity by your students to be of service to them more than sometimes you probably can bear. You know, I mean, yes. There's, there's one like I don't know if I can handle one more. Yeah, <laughs> you know? especially when I taught junior high, <laughs> that yeah. was whoa. <laughs> You're part parent, <laughs> but certainly, yeah. So interesting. And now I do want to come back to your after effects, though, before we get into your near death experience. There were a couple of things in your book that I liked, and one of them was you said that there are far more angels than there are people, and they're really forcing us to be more loving. Do you think that they're winning that battle or do you think that they're losing that battle right now? Um, speaking for the um, whole world, I think they're losing. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I never thought of myself as a cranky old man, <laughs> but I, I think I could be identified as a cranky old man because I'm becoming more and more pessimistic and critical of our society. And um, I think, I mean, the, the only place I really know anything about is the United States of America. I'm not, no means can speak with any kind of real authority, be it any place, um, except that I know that in Europe, um, average church, church attendance is between one and 3% in Christian, quote, Christian Europe. Um, and if you talk to Christians in Europe, they're like, you know, like the church is on the verge of extinction here. Um, Wasn't it Finway or Norway that's considered the happiest place on earth though? Huh? I think there's been some research that Finway yeah. or Norway, one of those countries is supposedly the happiest place on right. earth, but you know. Extremely wealthy country. Yeah. Um, I see the battle as between materialism and faith. And I'm not just talking about Christian faith. I'm talking about any faith in God. And um, my experience is, is that materialism is winning very successfully over faith. And uh, I have experienced this in Belize where I've done um, a great deal of mission work in the little village that I worked in for 13 years. I see materialism winning over faith and um you know there are there are revivals going on in the um, developing world like places in like south korea and africa and etc but um those haven't been really i haven't personally experienced those things so um i think the world's in big trouble and 
when you consider what we're doing to the world ecologically. Mm, yes. Um, you know, people, people um, misunderstand the difference between climate and weather. Um, weather is quite unpredictable and it changes not only every day, but every hour. And you can't really draw much conclusion from what's happening with your local weather. Um, but in terms of the climate of the world, there are some real changes. And for example, um, I've read that the uh, acidification of the oceans due to increased carbon dioxide is um, dramatically changing the ocean, which is really, really bad news for the whole planet. I mean, people talk about you know, increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and ozone and stuff like that, but there's other things um, going on that are really, really scary. So we have the, um, the ecological disaster, we have the rise of materialism, the decline of um, faith. And here's the thing that's so strange is that um, for everybody in the world, there's more opportunity, more wealth, more food, more security, more more healthcare, more more everything than that every human being has ever desired. There's more possibility of access to those things. Now, I'm not dismissing the people that still live in poverty, but at least that that they may have a tiny opportunity towards it. But in the United States, um, in the history of the world, we are the richest, most powerful, freest people in the whole history of the world, and anybody in the whole world that ever has ever lived would love to live in the United States and um, Americans are not happy. They're leaving yes. the churches in droves and becoming uh, very pessimistic and very materialistic. What's going on? I want to draw a connection between service and unhappiness because there's a lot of people in this country who, you know, go to Costco, hoard things, you know, they're scared to death. Hey, hey, hands off Costco. I really like Costco. No, but I'm talking about people who, they are not outward focused. They're inward focused about, right. you know, their materialism and what they're packing up, what they're saving, you know, what they can do to survive. And they would be so much happier if they spent their day giving more away and being more a part mm -hmm. of their community. Like the joy that I feel when I give to you know, an organization that helps human trafficking instead of buying designer jeans is way, way more profound than those designer jeans. You know, like, and I think yeah. it's a switch that yeah. people have to make in their minds to go, you know what? I feel more joy when I give more. And it's very hard for Americans because we're just inundated with uh, advertising and, you know, that we connect success and health and happiness to, um, in our full well-being. So I think that switch is important for Americans and just taking a darn break. Like when we had a gas shortage here in, uh, in Texas, briefly, I thought about your book and about people shooting each other at gas pumps and, you know, like descending into that kind of violence. And I was like, people just need to go home and chill, you know, in these yeah, moments, yeah. you know, eat what's in the refrigerator, you know, awesome. reach out to people around them, become a community instead of like this, complete individualistic mentality and other countries are way more connected and see themselves as one like I taught in South Korea and you know the the culture there is much more communal in this sense and so there is this you know I want to help you just because you're a human being 
type of feeling, um, which yeah. happens a lot. So yeah, we can, we can get off on this side topic about America for a long time, but I do want to ask you about that part of your book because it, it freaked me out. Did you get a time period about where you saw America descending into deep chaos. violence? Chaos. Yeah. Did you get a particular time period or could you tell me a little bit more about that part of the book? Um, you know, I'm, I'm reluctant to pretend to be a prophet, but I do know what Jesus showed me and what he told me. You know, so people always say, they always, they always frame it like it's my prediction. And it's like, no, I'm, I'm reporting. You know, talk, you know what I tell people? I says, if you've got a problem with this, talk to Jesus. Don't tell me because, like, you know, it's not mine. <laughs> it's his. No. Right, but right. Because, I mean, a lot of people make predictions and they're totally wrong. So. Yeah. So he was talking about 1985 that this would be um, this more beautiful world would have come about in 200 years, and the, but the transition the transition can be one of two ways. That can be God's preferred way, which is worldwide conversion, or the other way is um, global chaos which would mean um, a huge reduction in the world population and uh, for a while, the well-being of everybody. And that, um, that's not far off. So and that I'm sounds very much like revelations. I'm, hope, I'm hoping that I get to miss, I hope I die before it happens. Because when I say not far off, I'm dreading what they're showing me. Because if, when it comes, you know what I'm gonna do? What's that? When, when the marauders come, I'm going to go stand out in the street and tell them to go go to hell. So, so that they'll shoot you. <laughs> yeah, because we near death experience. You know, I, I don't want to buy an AK-47 and, you know, engage in the battle. Because we near death experiencers are not afraid of death. It's funny, you know, you, you bring up that moment. I, I really do... I hope that peace and love can transform this world. And, and you know, mm -hmm. there are people who think yeah. differently. Let's work for that. Let's work for that. Let's do <laughs> there, that. There are people who think about all this differently from you, you know, about um, the environment and they send energy to the oceans. And then there are other people who are, you know, deeply engaged in cleaning up the oceans and educating people about climate change. And, you know, that there's a lot that people do in many, in a myriad of ways to combat a lot of these things. And I always come back to the fact that love is the most important transformer right. of situations. So if we can give more love to others through service and through helping this world, then maybe we can make um, a shift. But the way you phrase that, you're saying like, everyone needs to convert to Christianity to avoid this no, disaster? No, convert to God. Convert to God, okay, yeah. yeah. Okay, because I was a little, yeah, when I, I did not have the same type of religious near-death experience, though I did have one little piece of information that sounded very much like Jesus. I heard, um, be like a little child during my near-death experience, and that is biblical, and, you know, it is tied to the wisdom of Jesus, and, and so I do want to get into just your near-death experience, and, but before we do, I've heard Skeptico, you know, your interview on Skeptico, and he brought up an interesting point about even Alexander saying that this is not about religion, um, you know, the, the experience of the near-death experience, that it's about love and transformative experiences. Why did you 
go into uh, religion and become a minister? Oh, well, thank you. That's a good question. Um, nobody's ever asked me that. Really? Um, yeah. You know, my experience um, first was hellish, and then my experience with Jesus, with him, you know, um, educating me and loving me and healing me. And um, I came back. So one of the things that I did was um, I got, I wasn't ambulatory, but I got uh, people to bring me um, major books on world religions. And I did, ha I did happen to have a Bible, so I read the Bible. And I read <clears throat> the Bhavada Gita, and I read a book called the, the Bible of Buddhism, which was a compilation, about 800 pages of Buddhist teachings. And um, I read the Quran, of course. And um, there, there were, I, I read a lot about Baha'i Baha faith, which I yes. liked very much. And um, I um, very strongly concluded that the most wisdom and the most God-inspired book was the Bible of the things that I read. And then I didn't know, um, okay, so like Bible, that, that would be, you know, following Jesus, that'd be Christianity, like what kind of Christian? So what I was doing, I'm not ambulatory, okay? I'm, I'm at home recuperating, and um, I would get the yellow pages. The yellow pages used to have like, um, you know, 20, 30 pages of churches listed in the, the greater Cincinnati yellow page. So I take my finger and run it up and down the pages and I say, just stop, God, stop my finger when I hit the church you want me to go to. <laughs> it didn't work. You know, I did this a number of times and I'm getting like, I kind of um, annoyed with God. It's like, okay, we're going to try this again, God. I, you know, pay attention now. It's real simple. <laughs> just stop my finger. It's like a Ouija board. You can do this, you know. <laughs> And nothing happened. So it's like, oh man, where I go? And then um, I actually thought about Unitarianism because I understood that they were like really open to everybody and like you know affirmed other religious things. So that that's pretty cool. And so it's like, and and I and I was still intrigued by Baha'i, and I mean, didn't know where to go. Um, and a woman that I knew who I had hired at another university in the art department called me up, asked me how I was. And she just happened to hit me when I was in that looking for a church mode. And she said, why don't you come to my church? It's like a mile from your house. And it's United Church of Christ. And I said, what's United Church of Christ? And she said, well, it's the joining of congregational and blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, that's what I was raised in. I was raised as a congregationalist. And then she said to me, you know, maybe you should grow where you were planted. And that like, that hit me like a anvil in the side of the head. Yeah. So that's, so I went to that church and um, you had made reference to it. When I went there, I had this like incredible um, epiphany. You know, the church was full of angels and they were, you know, and I, I, I also want to add that I was also very aware at the same time that the church was made up of um, a bunch of sinners like me because my big hesitancy about going to church was I was certain that if I went to a church, they'd spot me as a bad guy, as a sinner, uh -huh. and that they would despise me and throw me out. I, I just knew that was going to happen. You know, that there was, you know, they, they hid the billboard outside the church. Sinners are not welcome here. Um, 
which of course is not true, but that's what non-churchgoers, a lot of non-churchgoers think that like there's all these sort of holy Joe, holy Joe hypocrites, of course, we know they're hypocrites, you know, and they, and they don't want us. But anyway, so I went there and uh, I was a, very aware of the humanity of these people and they were very nice to me. I'm not pushy or anything, just nice. And um, I fell, in, I fell in love with the people. And when I was there, a little while, um, a woman by the name of Joyce Schweitzer came up to me and she said, this was privately, um, she said, what are you doing here? And I was like, what do you mean, what am I doing here? And she said, you don't belong here. And I said, um, that kind of hurts. What, what do you mean by that? Because I, I was thinking negatively and she said, she said, you have the Holy Spirit, and this is not a spirit-filled church, mm. and you won't fit in. And I said, maybe that's why I'm supposed to be here. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, I think it's the Dalai Lama who says that it's easier for us to worship in whatever religion is most prevalent in the area where we are at. And so yeah. he encourages Americans to go to Christian churches or, you yeah. know, if you're in a country where that, I mean, to worship, do you kind of agree with this statement that I, whatever I, is prevalent, totally go there? I've said that, you know, people, people email me or call me or whatever and ask me all the time, where should I go? And I says, well, like what's near you? <laughs> what's near you? Catholic church. Yeah. Yeah. That would be the one I would, I would, I would definitely check it out. You know? Right. Right. Because, you know, and I had a long struggle with this. I loved, I love meditation, love Buddhism, but there just aren't a lot of great temples. And, and so eventually I found myself in of all things, a Bible church, but it's just so beautiful and wonderful. And, you know, I love the minister and I get a lot out of it. And, who knew, you know, that my my yeah. path would take me full circle to to that? But it's a great place to worship. And I, I want to be part of the culture. I don't I don't want to be, you know, the the holy guy standing on the mountaintop pontificating about what's right and wrong with the world. I want to be. I mean, when I say, you know, I go back to this theme about wanting to be authentic and wanting to become. I want to be down in the muck, literally in the muck with everybody else. It's where the you know, real work is done. Yeah, I mean, I spent all day yesterday with a guy. Who, um, I spent the whole day with him. In um, like one of the first things he said to me, he said, well, I'm sorry, um, I smoked some marijuana before I came here to relax me. And I'm like, whatever, okay, you know, let's move on. Let's keep going. Because, <laughs> like, okay. you know, if I, if I was a real therapist, I would have booted him out. Interesting. You know? Interesting point, and we're going to get right to your near-death experience. I did not have a hellish near-death experience. Um, I like think I think my family, who's very evangelical and religious, would have liked to have seen me have hellish experience, but I didn't. I was 22. I was kind of a wild kid, but I was in rebellion to a lot of abuse and a lot of things that happened in my background, and I felt as if God needed to show me that I could be totally loved and that, you know, the angels were there to work through me in the classroom and that there's so much more magic and beauty in this world than I could have possibly imagined at that moment. And my experience was very loving and profound and it's what I needed. Do you think that we get what we needed? Like, do you think that you may not have changed as profoundly had you not had the experience that you had? Oh, um, you're hitting a raw nerve here. 
Um, I hope and pray that nobody ever goes through what I went through because I have never told anyone what really happened and what it was like for me. It was really bad, really, really bad. Oh, Howard. And I think it was an incredible gift of love that God gave me to do that yeah. because um, sometimes for therapeutic reasons, we need to go down to the bottom before we can see our way out. You know, there's a saying in AA, I'm, I'm, I've never been a part of AA, I've been a part of Al-Anon, but it's a big saying in AA where we, we talk a lot of AA stuff in Al-Anon. Um, you know, you can't, you can't go up until you've hit the bottom. You gotta go, to the, you gotta go down in the gutter before it's changed. You know, like uh, when you talk to AA people and you're talking about an alcoholic that you know, they, I mean, one of the first questions is, have they hit bottom yet? They go, no, and they said, well, not time for them, <laughs> you know, wow. not time for them to go to a meeting. You know, they got to go to the bottom first. Um, wow, so you didn't write about I everything. I went to the bottom, but I went, I went, um, I went into the cesspool bottom, and I'm trying to keep this clean. <laughs> yeah. I went to the cesspool bottom. So you didn't write in your book about everything that you experienced in that realm? By no, no means, and I don't talk about it. Right? I mean, I get, I get upset just thinking about, you know, I mean, I, I'm not even talking about it and I get upset, you know, just thinking about it because it was, it was, it was brutal. And I'm not just talking about for me emotionally, I'm also thinking about all the uh, souls were there because they, they're, they're my brothers and sisters. They're yours, not just mine. They're your brothers and sisters too. Your brothers and sisters are in that cesspool mm-hmm. and they, and they are, and they don't see their way out. Do they're my brothers and sisters, and they don't see their way out. And um, I don't know what I can do to help them. I've got some ideas, but I'll, I'll put that aside. But I, there's plenty of people um, living, living there and in that direction right here and now, and I'm trying to do what I can. So no, no matter how tormented someone is, do you think that they, and I believe this, that they still have the ability to call out to God, as you did, to call out to Jesus and to rescue themselves? Absolutely. Matter of fact, the thing that drives me crazy is that um, it's so simple. It's so easy Hmm. to call out to God and have your life totally changed. And you can go from despair to joy. You can go from pain to bliss. You can find like all your problems aren't going to be solved immediately, but with the help of God, you will find the solutions to your problems. You know, you find you find um, a way through all the difficulties of life, and find a community of support through um, faith communities. It's like, and 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 the thing is, is that um, in in real churches, real real synagogues, real temples, it's all free, no cost, no obligation. I mean, because you get a bunch of people just um, living to try and be helpful and supportive to someone. Yeah, I mean, you bring up this very weird situation, but I was briefly um, a big sister, and the mother of the child, she left her children with a child molester. That was her babysitter, and so I had to call CPS and, you know, deal with all this, and I was like, there's a church walking distance from your house. Like, go there. Find someone there to watch your kids, you know, like, for God's sake, you know, just 
pull yourself out of this misery and, you know, like see the light that there's a path, you yeah. know, to goodness. There's a path to a better life. And sometimes people, they literally just don't see their way into a better situation. And, you know, that's, yeah, that's a big part of that. So this is a little bit off topic, but do you see like people sometimes pick up on ghosts or entities? Do you think that those are lost souls in, in hell? Um, I don't think they're in hell. I think they're lost souls. I don't, I think they're, um, for reasons that I don't entirely understand. I've got some um, opinions, but they're just opinions. Uh, they are stuck, you know, yeah. um, because what hell is, is it simply means separation from God. And it could be any variety of things. There's infinite possibilities of what hell could be. Um, and they're, uh, those souls are clearly not in heaven. So for some reason they have, um, you know, according uh, to some people, um, they're um, stuck. They have attachments to this world and they haven't moved on. They're not, it's not a good place to be a lost soul, but they, they haven't moved on. Yeah. So I won't make you go too far into talking about hell, but I do want you to talk about your near-death experience and I'll just yeah. let you talk at this point. But you were very ill and you did... Um, see hell so you want to start at that point yeah um first of all i i want to say that um both from my personal experience and everything that i've, I've been studying theology for over 30 years now um god doesn't put anybody in hell mm, yes um, god doesn't punish anybody those are misunderstandings and mis interpretations of uh, God's word. What, what hell is, is it's, uh, it's the reward for people that um, despise God. Mm. And despising God means um, apathy. The greatest form of hate, the greatest form of violence is apathy, which means indifference. Um, and that's where, and that's what I had become. Um, and my faith was materialism. And so what I believed in all of my PhD friends and all of my friends were all had their um, terminal degrees, um, believed that if you can't measure it, see it, weigh it, you know, count it, um, it simply doesn't exist. Um, totally materialistic. So therefore, um, God doesn't exist. Um, angels don't exist. Uh, of course, there's no heaven. There's no hell. This is this is all there is. Uh, and that we're driven by our uh, sort of base animal desires, which we need to gratify. <laughs> Very important to gratify those desires. Um, and perpetuate our genes, you know, uh, and then you die. That's what I believed. That's, and when I say I believed it, I mean, I knew that. And all, and all of my friends knew it. And my, and my friends, both the people that I'd gone to school with and now I, as a faculty member of school, um, we knew that we were the smartest people on the planet and knew a lot more than those some 
silly Baptists and Catholics and Methodists and Presbyterians and Buddhists and, you know, Sikhs and um, Hindu, whatever, you know, we knew, we knew that those people were just, you know, those were primitive superstitions that people used to um, invent in order to explain why uh, there was thunder and lightning and, you know, why their cattle all got sick and died, whatever. Um, but we you summed that. that up pretty well. <laughs> that's that's how some people believe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when I was dying at Cochin Hospital, June first, nineteen eighty-five, um, people asked me if I prayed. And it's like I'm trying to explain to you, like the last thing in the world I would have done was pray. I whether I would have sooner jumped off the Eiffel Tower than pray. I mean, it's like you know, it's like. What, what an absolutely silly notion. Um, I did ask repeatedly at the few times that a nurse ever came into the room, because I never saw a doctor there until um, after my near-death experience. Um, I asked for morphine. I asked for a doctor. Because the pain of the... Uh, uh, hole in my duodenum, which was leaking hydrochloric acid and other um, delightful digestive juices into it. I was um, dissolving myself. I was digesting myself on the inside. And if you wonder what that feels like, um, get a red hot coal out of a fire and stick it inside your gut. That's what it feels like. And the problem was, is as the, um, digestive juices migrated throughout my abdominal cavity. It went from a point to an area to my whole abdomen. Mm. And the reason why I had to have the second surgery was because of the scarification due to uh, that and the septus that I suffered afterwards. Yeah, so you were aware of too much. And I was aware 17 hours before I went into surgery too, no painkillers or anything. And that's a terrible place to be. Some people are able to leave their body and disassociate from it. I didn't until... Yeah, I, I thought about trying that. It didn't work for me. <laughs> I also thought, I also thought, well, I kept thinking, why can't, why, uh, why am I not unconscious? I thought when it got bad, you got to be unconscious or you had some sort of euphoric thing going on. And it's like, I'm not, it, it ain't working for me. So any, any kind of, uh, the slightest movement only agitated the pain. Um, and people, you know, people tell me, well, the reason why you had your near death experience was because of all the narcotics you've been given. And like, no. <laughs> don't seem to be listening to me. I begged for anything and I was given nothing for 10 hours. Nothing. What, what, what about nothing don't you understand? It's just really and it's, irritating. And it's so hard to describe how I know the difference between a drug-induced state and that state. And it's so clear and it's so different from anything we ever experience in form. And that's, I think, for us, I think, largely what convinces us. Yeah. Um, when I lived in San Francisco from 1966 to 1972, um, my wife and I were given lots of uh, recreational um, opportunities, which we imbibed in and enjoyed. So um, in the famous words of Jimi Hendrix, I am experienced. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
So am I. It was the 90s, a different time period. <laughs> oh, wow. You missed it when it was <laughs> Yeah, we were trying to relive I mean, it. Like, you know, like we had some really heavy trips. You know, you, you know what I'm talking about now? Oh, yes. Yeah. And nothing like, <laughs> nothing like a near-death experience. No. 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 It, it, um, and people ask me if it was a dream. You know, like um, psychologists say we have many dreams every night. Now, I don't remember many dreams every night. I usually wake up with, you know, from a dream. And no relationship between a dream. And I also know it's not a hallucination and I won't go into it, but if you go look and look up the word hallucination in a medical textbook, there's no comparison because those are um, psychotic episodes that are destructive. And my near-death experience was the healthiest thing that ever happened to me in my entire life. I mean, it really was, um, and I'm not saying this biblicalism, but it really was my second birth, you know? Interesting. I'm not humming at you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's something going on outside. Oh, so yeah. when the nurse came in and said that um, they were unable to locate a doctor, this was at eight thirty at night. I'd been in the hospital since eleven. I went in at eleven, um, or shortly after eleven. And they were unable to locate a doctor. See, I'd never, I'd never actually been under any doctor's care because there was no doctor. You know, it was a Saturday in Paris. Like what the, you know, there were no doctor at the biggest city hospital in Paris in the surgical wing. Wow. I'd seen, I'd seen two doctors in emergency, and they were very nice, but they didn't do anything. They just sent me over to surgery. I mean, they diagnosed me and told me, they told me I had an hour to live. That's what they told me. And I would be having surgery right away. So they sent me to surgery and unbeknownst to them, I'm sure there wasn't anybody to do the surgery. So that's why I didn't get any meds because yeah. I was asking them for meds. And they said, no, we can't give you meds because the doctor's going to give you meds. Same thing. Yeah. They couldn't find a neurosurgeon to operate on me because one had been off duty for a long time and the other one didn't want to come in because I didn't have yeah. health insurance. And so I was just there strapped to a board waiting for a yeah. doctor. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so anyways, nurse said no doctor. So that's when I told my wife, I said, tell my parents that I love them. And I said, goodbye, tell my kids, tell my friends, blah, blah, blah. I love you. And she was crying like I'd never, I'd actually never seen anybody in my life cry like that. I mean, she was crying from the, the soles of her feet all the way up and just shaking and throbbing and, you know, and she sat down and I looked at her and I said, I, time for me to go. So I checked out, you know, really, really easy. I'm, you know, I, I found it the easiest thing in the world to die, which is um, for me, I was having a lot of trouble breathing. Um, I, I actually, for the last several hours, all I was doing was trying to breathe because I had enough sense to know that if you stop breathing, that would be a bad thing. So, and it was very, very hard to breathe. So what I was doing, here's what I was thinking about for the last few hours. Breathe air in, push the air out. Tough breathe. place to be. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I was doing. So, so did you, all, I, all I had to do was just stop doing that and I went unconscious. Did you pop out of form quickly? No, no yeah. I didn't pop out at all. Hmm. I um, awoke, I was standing there, I felt absolutely physically more real, more alive, 
and completely healed than I'd ever done much. So the first thing I did was I did a reality check, which consisted of taking my hands and I felt myself from the top of my head, felt myself all the way down, right down to my feet. And it's like feeling good. Matter of fact, feeling really good. <laughs> and so then I started to do a sensory check. You know, I'm like, I know it sounds very rational, but that's, I was a very rational person. So I was like, hmm, what do I smell? Ooh, I smell Monsieur Florent's urine. That was my roommate, Monsieur Florent. I could smell his urine smell. Hmm. Um, and it's like, ew, ew. Um, and then um, I can hear the hum of the fluorescent lights in the ceiling real loud. I mean, it's like a, not like a roar, but it was real. I mean, I hear them humming really loudly. And then I looked and I realized that in, in our, you know, I was an art teacher. So like in our vision, we see 180 degrees with two, if you have two eyes. Um, well, I was seeing way more than 180 degrees. And I'm going, ooh, that's so weird. Yeah. And then I also, then I checked my depth of field, which is, you know, like if you focus something far, your near is out of focus and vice versa. I was going like, I have complete depth of field. I mean, I, I am focused on everything. And then I'm like, touch. And like, I'd already touched my body and it's like, whoa, whoa, like really, you know, very sensitive. And then I like, so I'm doing the bottoms of my feet and like I could read the texture of linoleum hmm. with through my feet. And I'm going like, wow, this linoleum's like so cool, <laughs> you know? And so I'm, I'm really, I'm like, I'm really getting excited about all my heightened senses. And of course, the thing that's most exciting is no pain, you know, like whoopee, right. you know, I'm healed. Right. So I'm healed. And so I'm looking around the room and my wife's on the other side of the bed. And then I notice in the bed, mostly covered by a sheet, but the head not completely covered was a person. And I looked at the person who was facing my wife away from me. And to my horror, it bore a remarkable resemblance to me. Now, I knew rationally that that wasn't me because I was standing there and like you can't, rational people know you can't bifurcate. And, you know, I mean, that's crazy stuff. That's schizophrenia to say that like you were standing over yourself, looking at yourself, right? Like, I'm not crazy. I'm not nuts. That's not me. So then I'm thinking, how come it looks so much like me? Because could it be a coincidence? No, that that's ridiculous. So I'm trying to think of a scenario. So what I came up with, which I realized was absolutely ludicrous, was is that the um, French hospital personnel had uh, made a wax replica of me <laughs> and put it in the bed. And then I realized, one, they didn't have the time to do that. And that's like takes a lot of skill because it was a very good replica. And three, like, what would be their motive? You know, I mean, why would they go to all that trouble and expense, you know, to, to <laughs> This great and, wax re replica. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm actually, I'm telling you the truth. Okay? It's funny. Um, yeah, I mean, looking back was funny at the time. It was very disturbing. So it made me angry. I'm, I'm, so I'm, I'm going towards anger. And then I tried to communicate with my wife with, I can't, um, I can't give you all the uh, cuss words that I used to use, but what the F and 
I wrote my book literally. And so there were 17 F words in the first two chapters that I had to, <laughs> <laughs> to take yeah. out the, after the first yeah. draft. Well, anyway, so the, I'm yelling at my wife who's sitting there with like her head down and tears running down her cheeks. And I get no response. And it was like infuriating because like one of her techniques to punish me when we were not getting along was to ignore me. Mm. You know, it was a pretty common strategy on her part to pretend that I didn't exist. And so I figured, okay, she's really mad at me for being sick and her, her whole, the, our whole trip to Europe being ruined and stuff like that. And, you know, we we're supposed to fly the next day and like, that's, that's not going to happen. And we're losing that ticket, you know? Um, so I'm figuring she's really, really mad at me for what I have done to her and ruined her life. And so I turned to my roommate, Monsieur Florent, who was a 68 year old, super kind, sweet, sick Frenchman. And I mean, he didn't have anything against me. You know, I mean, we'd only met that day, you know, like I hadn't done anything to him. And uh, I tried to talk to him. He looked through me like he couldn't see me, which of course he couldn't. I didn't know that. And I um, started yelling and screaming at him um, and no response. And now I'm really agitated, very, very agitated. So you still don't realize you're dead. On the contrary, I'm more alive than I've ever been. Yeah. I asked Jesus later, I said, so what happens to people when they die? And he said, and he said it's a really big problem because um, he said, usually when people die, they don't know they've died because like when they were dying, they were in suffering. And when they die, the suffering's over. And so they feel really good. So they think they've gotten well and they don't know that they've died at all. Yeah, I did a little dance, a little jig. <laughs> I was like, yeah. woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> this um, feels good. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because people are terrified of dying. It's like, no, dying's really great when you're not doing well, you know? Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's a release. Nature's kind, it releases yeah. you. And, yeah. yeah. Anyways. So when did so you realize heard, you were dead? Yeah, so I heard people outside the room calling me by name, which I thought was strange because I was in France and... Um, surprisingly the people in France speak French and Howard is not a French name, which nobody could ever pronounce <laughs> correctly. But anyway, so they were calling, they were speaking English, Howard, you know, come with us. So went over the door of the room and um, there were people out in the hallway and the hallway was gray, um, like a really, really bad black and white TV picture, very fuzzy, which was weird because the room was so ultra clear. And the hallway was um, very indistinct. And there was these people out there in the same common. I said, are you from the doctor? I'm sick. I'm supposed to have surgery. I've been waiting like, you know, all day. And, and they said, we know all about you. Um, we've been waiting for you. Hurry up and come with us. So after some convincing, but never admitting anything, I became sure that they were hospital people to take me to surgery. And considering the treatment that I'd had in this hospital up to this point, the fact that they wanted to walk me to surgery made perfect sense. I mean, I never questioned that. Um, mm -hmm. And so we went on a long journey. I'm probably going into way too much detail for you. This is where you're taken to hell? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And if you don't want to stay there for a long time, if you want to give the highlights of that, that is, that is fine. Well, but I yeah. like <laughs> the, the low lights, very low lights. Just a few observations, some things that I knew then and nothing has happened in the over 30 years to convince me that um, I was mistaken. That, like I said earlier, those people were there because um, they didn't um, have love in their hearts, love of God, love of themselves, love of one another. Um, the Bible says um, people judge by appearances, God judges by the heart. Yes. And um, that's I think the people were there. Um, it's not. It's not because they were worse sinners than other people. You know, the Christian faith says we're all sinners and all sinners equal. So we're like, we're all sinners. It's it's like um, it's an equal playing field here. the The question is, what do we um, desire in our heart? That's the real the real issue. And yeah. um, that's what attracts people either towards the heavenly direction or towards the hell. Hell, hell is um, separation from God. And the only thing that makes hell bad is um, the people there. God doesn't make hell bad. Um, if they were nicer to each other, it'd be a lot more pleasant down there than it is. Hmm. But um, what I found was um, the only in their separation from God, it also means all the good things that God gives us. Like, um, there's no birds or butterflies or flowers or sunshine or rain or wind or um, there's no candy, there's no chocolate cake, there's no ice cream, there's no hamburgers. Um, it's pretty bleak. And so what people do is... Um, what psychologists have found when they cage a bunch of animals in a cage for a period of time, they start gnawing on each other because that's the only gratification they get. Um, yeah, you're reminding me of some paintings that I've seen which depicted hell, which this is in South Korea, but people are eating their feces and eating each other. And yeah. really, it, it's just the most grotesque, horrific painting you yeah. can imagine and, and so it yeah. sounds similar yeah and so it's a miserable existence and the pro the thing that's so sad is like um well i became so you, you, i'm sure you watch a lot of turkish prison movies you know um, <laughs> not really <laughs> oh you don't oh. Uh, well anyways in prison movies, there's a concept of the new fish. When a, you know, when a new inmate comes into the prison, like everybody's excited because they want to initiate them, which usually means um, brutal rape and other things, right? Yeah. Um, so I was new fish. So hundreds of them had their way with me. And that's all I want to talk about. That's all I want to say about that. And, and you know yeah it's it's you overwhelming don't, you, don't, you don't want to know about that yeah it sounds like as beautiful as the love is the lack of love is just as horrifying and yeah. so and, and the pain of it is the physical part 
is awful. Um, but the emotional part is much worse than the physical part. You know, I, you know, when it was happening and after it happened, it's like, how could they want to hurt me that much? Why do they hate me that much? You know what I mean? That's, that's the part I couldn't, I, and I, and, and I, and I can't understand because you know what? I, I know why now because they don't care. And I'm going back to this theme of the ultimate hatred, the ultimate violence is apathia. They didn't care about me. I was just a thing to try and gratify, you know, a few and, moments sensation. And that sounds like human trafficking or any of the horrible things that go on in the world. There is a not caring that this is a human being. You right. Know, this is, you know, someone is being harmed and there's no care. It's just yeah, because, monetary I mean, or it's just... When, when you think about doing something like that to a child, male, male or female, and you and I think, how could a human being do that to a child? Because children are just so delightful and precious and lovable. How could someone do that to a child? Um, yet it happens all over the world all the time, including to my wife, etc. I mean, when she was a child. But anyway, it's another story. So anyhow... Um, they don't care. I mean, they weren't doing it to me. They weren't, they weren't doing it to me personally. It was just, I was new fish. I was mm -hmm. fresh meat. And when they were done with me, um, by being done with me, it's, I, I was no longer responsive um, physically and emotionally uh, too far gone. Um, you know, the term that I like to describe was I was roadkill. No. Yeah. Um, and in that place, I heard a voice that said, uh, pray to God. I literally, heard, I mean, I literally heard a voice say, pray to God. I don't know who said that. I don't know where it came from. It kind of felt like it was like here coming out of my chest, which I think it was coming out of the spirit of God that was in me. But I'm just speculating here. I mean, at the time it's like, who said that? <laughs> I mean, it's like, who said that? And, um, and I thought, what a stupid idea. I don't believe in God. I don't pray. And the voice said, pray to God. And I thought, I don't know how to pray. I haven't prayed since I was a kid. You know, it's like, I don't pray. I'm not a prayer. Forget it. And the voice said, pray to God. Real strong. And I thought, okay, what would that look like? I mean, it's just pure. I'm just speculating on what would it look like for me to pray? And so I'm thinking, okay, um, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States. Oh, no, no, let's pledge allegiance. Four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth in this continent a new nation. No, 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 no. That's um, Abraham, I think. Um, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as a gentle rain upon a place beneath to twice blessed. No, 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 no. Shylock, for two minutes. Um, oh, man, I can't think, you know, like, I mean, I, I'm, I'm remembering things I've memorized because, of course, from my perspective, 38-year-old 30 genius college professor, department head, I thought prayer was something you memorized when you were a child, right? Which is very, um, very, very elementary and simplistic understanding of prayer. Anyhow, so I'm trying to remember, and like I finally come up with, the, I come up with like, the Lord is my shepherd. <gasps> And I'm so excited, I murmured it. I, I mean, I wasn't 
I murmured it out of excitement that I actually remembered something that sounded like a prayer. And upon doing that, the people that were still around me, which they were no longer um, interacting with me because I had become tedious and uninteresting, uh, they became very angry. And they said to me in language, that's the worst language I've ever heard in my life. Um, there is no God, nobody can hear you. And now we're gonna really, really hurt you. Like basically telling me what we did before was nothing compared to what we're gonna do to you now. Um, if you don't stop. Really, see, and this is a terrible commentary on them because they couldn't bear like my most miserable, pathetic little prayer. And then I thought of some other things, like our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And I mean, I was only, I was only remembering like phrases. I couldn't remember like a whole verse, just a little <laughs> phrase. So I'm remembering the stuff and I'm coming up with glory, glory, hallelujah, his truth goes marching on. And I mean, just any, <laughs> anything that, you know, um, had any kind of like uh, mention or association with God. So I'm, I'm saying this stuff and it's really making them angry. And the thing that I liked was um, all this time I'd been defenseless is no matter how hard I had fought to fend them off me, finally I find something they really don't like. And the other thing I noticed that the more I said these things and I was shouting them, I was shouting them in anger. Um, the more I said these things, the more it drove them away. And I could, I could <clears throat> we're in peach black, so I can't see anything, but I can, I can hear them retreating and retreating and retreating. So like, yippee, one, yippee, skippy. I'm like, I'm, I'm really making them mad and I'm driving them away. So I'm like letting them have it with this stuff. And I'm just repeating this stuff over and over again. And eventually I realized the only thing I can hear anymore is me and I can't hear them. So like I become quiet and I listen and I listen carefully. And I know some, some place, somewhere they're out there, but I don't know where, you know, but they're far and that's good. And then I um, think about my situation and realize I'm stuck because I can't crawl, I can't move, I can't go anywhere, and I don't know where I am. And also, um, I know now, I mean, I didn't have to debate this. I knew that um, I was not alive and I was not in the world. So I'm trying to think of my situation. And so what I could come up with, because I lacked um, any religious um, understanding, um, where I grew up in Massachusetts, we had septic systems and cesspools. We weren't hooked up to sewer lines. So what I came up with is that I had gone down the toilet and through the plumbing into the cesspool. And I don't know if how into cesspool um, theology you are, but there's some um, layers in the cesspool, like the... Um, Dante's Divine Inferno. <laughs> yeah, got it. But anyway, it's like at the top is floating the unprocessed stuff and the deeper you go, the more it gets processed and then it all becomes liquefied and eventually then goes out into the leaching. But anyways, that's what I, that's what I, I, I was trying to think of what part of the septic system I was in. And what did you <laughs> conclude? <laughs> I conclude that I was in the, I was in the entry level wow. and that I knew I knew that my life was filth, garbage. I knew that I was a selfish ass. I knew that. I mean, in the world, I never would have admitted that to you. If you, if, if you and I had met, if you'd met me as uh, 
Howard Storm, Professor Howard Storm, you know, at Northern Kentucky University. Um, I would have tried to impress you, you know, with what a nice, good person I was. That was all, all hypocrisy. It's all a lie. Basically, I want to get in your pants. Okay. I mean, sorry. Um, but that's just the truth. Um, or if not that, get you to admire me and be a fan, you know? All, all, as you, all as you would be to me is someone to support my ego, you know? Yeah, and that, that ego, I was very judgmental before my near-death experience, and I saw that as a problem too, that even my thoughts, my negative thoughts about other people kind of harmed this beautiful connection I could have with them. Did you, did you see that, wow, there's just so much more potential and possibility for human interactions because of, of your near-death experience? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because, I mean, now, I mean, I genuinely make an attempt to love everybody I meet exactly where they are. And basically, um, I mean... <laughs> I know I'm a preacher and that's a dirty word, but I'm not, I'm not out there to exploit anyone, you know, well, anyhow. Yeah. So, so I went through my life and I'm not going to go through my life with you unless you've got. My <laughs> no, um, but you had the life review. Well, no, not yet. I, I did my own life review and what I concluded was that I know this sounds funny, but I graded myself after I went through my life and I realized that I was basically um, F and D's in every department. Hmm. My relationship with my father, my mother, my sisters, my students, my friends, my wife, my kids. I just gave myself F and D's all, up and down the line because all I could see was all the ways that I had failed. And I felt real, real bad. Were you judging that in terms of how much love you gave it to them? Yeah. Yeah. And I realized that I, I belonged in the place that I was and that I was stuck there and nothing was ever going to change it. And that the only way that I could um, have any kind of an existence in that place was to somehow pull myself together and to become more vicious than they were. In other words, before you got a chance to bite me in the neck, I'll rip your head off. You know, that would be our greeting. You know, you go for my neck and I rip your head off, right? That's what, and I thought, I'd rather not exist than live like that. Because I, I'd rather not be than be one of them. So now I'm in a dilemma because here I am, there's no way out. I have no way, no way of knowing how, yet they're going to come back and I can't, I can't count on this, this prayer bit, which was quite insincere. You know, I mean, it wasn't from my heart. It was just like, it worked. It was, but I mean, how, how much, how long is that going to work for me? You know? Yeah. Uh, and I went into um, the deepest, deepest despair. I mean, I, I mean, here I am in the cesspool and now I'm, I mean, emotionally, spiritually thinking into a deeper hole. I'm like there's no way out of this and down in that hole my, my little mind's working 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 trying to come up with something it comes up with like a eight or nine year old child sitting in sunday school singing jesus loves me and that's what saved you isn't it so that was the thread 
because it became, it wasn't the idea, the, the words were good, but it wasn't the words. It was like, when I was a little kid, I believed in like this God slash Superman. And when, you know, the alligators and bears that live under your bed that are trying to bite your toes, remember them? Oh, yes. <laughs> well, okay, good. Um, when they would start snapping at my toes at night, you know, in the middle of the night, I would pray to Jesus and they would go away. And so you so believed in fun. some power that Jesus had. And so that gave you that link to yeah. a greater power. Yeah. And I mean, that I am, I am telling you the uh, unvarnished truth of the extent of my faith at that point, <laughs> like <laughs> hook me up. <laughs> you know, and then the and then of course I'm having voices in my head saying you don't believe this silly stuff you know like that you know you were a child you're an idiot you know you know it's not true and then the other voices were saying why would he care about you you've done nothing but use his name as a cuss word for the past twenty years you know like you know he's not going to listen to you even if he did exist he hates your guts you know I mean I get so I'm mean, having all this stuff going on, and then like finally I'm like screaming in my head like stop it stop it stop it. And I just yell out into the darkness, pure desperation, Jesus, please save me. Without the faintest idea whether there was a Jesus or not a Jesus or whether he liked me or didn't like me or, you know, I mean, I had, I had nothing except this faint hope that it might be true based on something I experienced as a little child. And I remember reading that it was like a light and you saw the light yeah. getting closer and you saw Jesus coming for, me, for you. Yeah. And when was the first moment that you felt love, like where you felt, okay, this is the shift? It, this impossibly bright light, like if it was actually light light, it would have, it would have burned me. Um, it was that bright, but instead it not only did it not burn me, it was like so incredible. Um, I was like, you know, so overwhelmed by the brightness of the light and its beauty. And then like, I looked down at myself and I saw gore and I was like, ew. You know, I was really gory. I hadn't seen myself. I mean, I had been eviscerated, okay? Um, not pretty. And out of the slide came hands and arms, and he touched me. And when he touched me, um, three things happened. One is all the gore just started to disappear, and I became whole. This all happening, not instantaneously, but pretty quickly, like one, two, three, four, boom, you know, like that. The other thing that happened was I was filled with ecstasy instead of um, being um, simply just nothing but pain from head to foot. Now all of a sudden that the pain goes away and I'm filled with ecstasy. And lastly, and most importantly, um, I experienced a love that I had never known that existed. And unfortunately, I haven't found any language yet that can begin to describe it. And I would love to find that language, but... Um, that's where it, we all break down. It's, I, I wish you'd um, help me out on this. <laughs> yeah, that's where we all break down because it's so many things all at one time. I felt comforted, safe, ecstatic, loved. I mean, it, it was like an explosion of everything good that you can imagine. And yet at the same time, cradled and safe and, right. and at the same time free. So there's all these contradictory elements yeah. that occur at one time. And it's, it is hard to put into words. So yeah, if you felt that, then you were feeling better than you'd ever felt in your entire life, emotionally, oh, yeah. intellectually, spiritually. And it's, 
frankly, that that time is all I care about and all I live for and what I have to um, refresh myself with through contemplation, meditation on that and what I anticipate experiencing again fully at my great hallelujah getting up day. Yeah, so that I think that that's what we teach a lot of people to meditate on is just to imagine that love and being that loved and to feel what that would like be like in every cell of your body to be that treasured and that loved and that adored. And that is what we need to remember, I think, you know, from that love of God. Yeah, and it's not inaccessible. It is, in fact, accessible if you want to put for the, you know, I tell people all the time, uh, I mean, I go. I won't go through the whole detail, but I tell people how you can get to that step by step by step, and it works for me. And I've some people that I've suggested this to. It's worked for them, and I, I think it would work for anybody if they followed. I believe it would work for them if they followed the plan that I laid out. Um, but it, you know, if it takes a few hours, I mean, it's like what's a few hours? What if it takes you six hours? So what? Right. You know, I mean, it's like going to change your life. It's gonna. It's gonna. Um, you know, help you out a lot, you know, and the, it's free. Yeah, the same thing with changing your life. So what if it takes two years to get everything in order? You know, yeah. at the end of those two years, you're living a much better life. So, right, right. yeah, yeah. So you felt this incredible love with Jesus. And you also experienced angels, too, didn't you? Or, or acknowledge well, them? Okay, he picked me up. He held me real tight. And I just want to add one more thing. When he held me, I knew that there was some, besides all this healing and love and all that, that he really, really liked me a lot. Matter of fact, I'm his favorite person in the whole universe. I have to add, unfortunately, you are too. <laughs> and so is everybody else. But yes. he makes you feel like, yes. he makes you feel like you're the only one. I mean, like, as if I'm the only person that ever existed, you know? I mean, it's like that. Yeah. It's that intense. And, it made me feel, and, and he likes me. I mean, he doesn't dislike me. He's not, he's not, you know, he's not mad at me. He's, you know, he's happy. And why are we so hungry for that as people? I think we don't experience it enough in this world. This yeah. like, oh, I mean, dogs try to give it to us. Little kids oh, try to give does. it to us. Yeah, <laughs> my, do- my dog, he does give me that. <laughs> but, you know, we, other people sometimes just can't love us in that way. You know, that yeah. full, unconditional, well, I, open-hearted I, I, way. I can tell you why, because... We get reject when we try to act like that, when we act like little children, just go up and like throw our arms around people and tell them we love them. You know what? I, I tried that after my near death experience. It doesn't work. Me too. <laughs> you, get, you get shoved away. I mean, people say really bad things to you. Yeah, yeah. You were a 38 year old man. Or, I was people a, miss it, or people totally. Oh, miss yeah. I was a 22-year-old woman, so you know, men yeah. were falling in love with me, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And I was like, no, 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 no. Yeah, I didn't mean what? that kind of love. <laughs> I know. I, I mean, I, I, I was a 38-year-old man. I was getting, you know, it just wasn't working out right. Yeah. Um, and as a, as a pastor, you know, one of the things that's frustrating, it's like um, we have, like, boundary training every few years, mandatory boundary training. I'm not allowed to touch anyone unless they initiate it. Yeah. And I'm sure not allowed to tell people that I, you know, I love them so much or anything like that. I mean, if I did that, I'd like, I would be defrocked. 
But you know what's interesting is what I do, like kind of jokingly tell my students, oh, I love you guys. I see them smile. You know, like there's this sense of everyone wants to hear that they're loved. You know, yeah. there is this, this yeah. need for it. Okay, so keep so going. Jesus, so I'm, I'm holding on to Jesus. I'm crying, happy cry. And he's um, rubbing my back. He gave me a nice, very soft, tender back rub. And we take off. And um, just like flying in a helicopter, except it was just Jesus and me without the helicopter. And we start uh, moving and I, all I'm aware of, cause like I've got my face buried in his chest and neck was we're going, we're really going. I mean, like I know, I know. And actually I'm a, I'm a little bit scared cause I'm actually thinking, so I hope he doesn't let go of me. <laughs> <laughs> the son, he doesn't like you that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so we're moving, and um, I'm trying to get my act together because I'm feeling I, I've put a lot of slobber on him from my nose and mouth, a lot, a lot of slobber, and I'm feeling bad about that because I don't have a hanky to clean him up. <laughs> and um, uh, Okay, so I'm trying to get together. So I get enough together and I, and I look and I see like we're moving towards a world of light and all around the world of light, like a bazillion little lights going in and coming out and there's all this activity. And I had this gigantic, uh-oh, the God that I said wasn't, we're going to his house. We're going into his territory. I mean, I know that. I just know that somewhere in that big, galaxy of light if you will there's god in that and we're headed towards it and i am the biggest idiot in the whole world and they probably hate me you know because of what i've said and done um and i think to myself he's made a terrible mistake i don't belong here and with that eek, we come to a, a stop and we are outside of the world of light, which we could call heaven because that's what it was. I call it home. Um, and he spoke to me for the first time telepathically and he said, um, we don't make mistakes. You belong here. And I thought, how do you know what I thought? I didn't say that. Can you hear what I think? And he laughed and he said, I know everything you've ever thought. And I thought, I feel real uncomfortable with you knowing everything I've ever thought because I've thought things that I don't want you to know that I've thought. And immediately I thought of something that I didn't want him to know that I thought about, which was I thought of a breast. <laughs> I've always, I've always been a boob guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <this is> <laughs> Too much information, huh? Okay. No, that's what I, I mean, seriously, that's what I thought of. And you know what he did? He laughed and laughed and laughed. He, <laughs> he laughed and that's funny. <laughs> he thought it was really funny. And I thought, oh, he thinks I'm funny. He said, yeah, you're real funny. And I was like, he thinks I'm funny because nobody thinks I'm funny. I mean, like, <laughs> I, I have a wicked sense of humor, but it's like, it's New England. It's very dry. You know, I make like a lot of jokes and people look at me like, what's your problem? You know, <laughs> it was humor. Excuse me. You know? um, I mean, have you, have you noticed I'm funny? 
You know? Yes, yes. I think that is funny. <laughs> I'm so very anyway, silly. He, yeah. So he he liked he liked my you know he thought that was funny, and I thought, and he's not a prude. Yeah. Like actually, boob is like I mean, what's the big deal? It's it is what it is. It's not, you know, it's not you know what I mean. And um, so I mean, it could have been worse, right? Yeah. And uh, so we so like we started talking, and he kind of interrupted our conversation, which is all telepathically. Um, he had a, a young male voice. And he said, I got a bunch of people I want you to meet. And so he called out with tone, musical tone. Mm -hmm. And they came and there was a group of them and they formed a survey circle around us. And he said, they've um, recorded your life. I'm, a, I'm, I'm running through this quickly. There's a lot more, but- I'm Oh yeah, and I will, I'll put a yeah. link to some of the other places where you've told your full story. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, I do want so to get to the angels. He said, they've, they've, got, they've recorded your life and they want to show you your life. So we pr proceeded to watch my life and that was a, what I would refer to as a holographic projection of me interacting with people. And the interesting thing was that there were props um, but usually not a background, only when the background was appropriate. So it's yeah. like people, a few, like the, pro, it would be like, so it was for me too. Boy, my mother at yeah. the table, we got tables and chairs and a floor and the rest of the kitchen just isn't there at all. It's, it's like, it's so hard to explain, but you're doing a good job of it. It's like the images just kind of pop up yeah. and you see, okay, here's me interacting or here's me thinking yeah. this and being a part of this scene. But it, it for me, it was projected into this starry sky. Um, you know, yeah. that's where I had my life review and I just saw the scenes that I needed to see. Maybe not right. my whole life, but just, you know, yeah. ones that were important. But, but for me, it was in chronological order and sometimes mm -hmm. we'd go, into a scene and like see what happened to the person after we, what happened to them after we'd interacted or what they were feeling would feel what they were feeling you, you went know? in chronological order i went backwards that's oh, interesting. Okay. It's your childhood yeah. yeah and the thing that was um difficult was is that as i became an adolescent and became more and more of a um ubermensch which was my goal you know nietzschean superman um I was more manipulative and detached from people and Jesus and the angels clearly share their um, unhappiness with the direction that I was going. Not, not in a cruel way, just like, Ooh, it's really disappointing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and I felt, and I felt their feelings and I felt bad that I was so such a disappointment. They weren't angry. They weren't mad. They were just disappointed because um, what I ultimately learned from the whole thing was that we were created to love one another. Um, that's our job. That's the curriculum. That's the whole, the whole thing in a nutshell. And that's the only thing that matters. And what I was doing was moving away from that. So um, ultimately I was, I mean, I had a career, I had a wife, I had kids, I had a house, I had cars, you know, blah, blah, blah. I had all that. I had the American dream and I was going somewhere and I won prizes at art shows, you know, and I got tenure and I was a full professor and I, you know, blah, blah, blah. And none of that mattered. And they let me know that none of that mattered at all. Matter of fact, it was, a, it was very surprising disappointment because I'd say, look, look here. I got, you know, I'm a full professor. I'm 26 years old, full professor. Never, nobody gets that, you know? I'm like, yeah, well, that, 
us of no consequence at all. Look, as, look here where you ignored a student who really, really needed a friend. And then they would feel so sad for that student. And it's good. You know, it's Homer Fields, by the way. That was his name. It's Kentucky. Homer Fields. What a great name. Mm, that is great. And Homer was looking for a friend to talk about his girlfriend who had dumped him. And you know what? I really didn't want to hear his BS about his 18-year-old broken heart. You know, it's like, you know, I kept thinking, they don't pay me enough at this university to listen to this crap. That's what I kept thinking as he's crying in my office. You know, it's interesting and that I was sent back to teach and I was sent back for those students, you know, those exact ones. And I've, I've been so aware that people commit suicide at young ages over breakups, you know, oh, people, yeah. people yeah. lose it, you know, and it may seem like nothing to us, but it's the first time they felt that kind of a massive heartbreak. And right. if they're from a fragile background, you know, their psyches are already damaged in some way. It can be the difference between them living and dying. You know, yeah, and, and, that's, and we are so blessed that for, for their own reasons, which are probably completely misguided, they have decided that we're trustworthy yes. and want to share this and seek help from us. And yeah. I mean, we're blessed to be in that position and we, and we think it's an imposition. Yeah. A valuable time because we're busy. Yeah. I so, didn't, I didn't feel that way, but I wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't want to be a teacher. <laughs> you know, I to, so I, my near death experience forced yeah. me to be yeah. a teacher. Yeah. I'm glad you weren't an attorney. Yeah, yeah. Oh, ex-wife's an attorney. Oh, I'd love to argue, <laughs> but we haven't argued much. <laughs> so anyways, so yes. we, we went over the life review and as the life review went on into my adult life, I was begging them to stop it. I'm like, I got it. I, nah, no, no, no. And they'd say, no, you got to watch. So we went through the whole thing. It was uh, brutal. Um, and I made them very disappointed and very sad. But I got the point. It was real simple. We were here. We were supposed to love each other. And I completely missed it. I thought my life was about being the most famous, wealthiest, important, powerful person that I could possibly be. I mean, I wanted it all, you know? Oh yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, what I, what I, I mean, I mean, to put it in very simple terms, what I wanted was I wanted a great big, huge art book published by Abrams and on the title, the paintings of Howard Storm. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. under the titles, we'd see in the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art, in the collection of the Whitney Museum of Art, you know, that, that's, that's what I was after. And I was after just bunny, plain and simple, because I grew up poor. Oh. And I just wanted as much what well, I didn't care who I married to get it. I didn't care who I stepped Ooh. on to get it. You know, I mean, like in my mind, I was just like, yeah. that's security. That's what matters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, my father was like that and he was all about money. So I was going after something higher than money that a, a side product would be the money that come with yeah, it. Yeah, but yours is like the my would be selling for hundreds fame. of thousands of dollars. <laughs> it was the fame that I wanted, you know, yeah. the money would flow. Anyhow, so after that life so review, when we, were, when we were over with that whole thing, um, he said, do you have any questions? And I said, yeah, I got a million questions. So I asked him everything I could think of to answer. And he answered everything. And the, I love that part of the book. When, when did you feel that you had exhausted all of that where you felt like, okay, you know, I know enough. And are there things that you've forgotten that you asked? I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> I forget whether I forgot anything. I'm not sure, but I, I mean, 
I don't tell everybody, I've never told anybody everything because some of it gets like a little esoteric and um, I think it's prudent to, um, you know, I've gotten in trouble for stuff. I mean, I mean, I've had people tell me that I'm the devil and I'm an apostasy and I'm, um, I've had been accused of things on just like real simple stuff. Like for example, I mean, I'll give you an example of like um, when when babies are either aborted or stillborn or die when they're very young, um, they just get another chance at life, you know. And and people have been furious with me and call me all kinds of names because Jesus told me that. And it's like I'm sorry if you don't like Jesus' plan. No, no, he doesn't throw babies into hell, and he doesn't, you know, and they don't. Jesus and, and God, from what I experienced, was just pure love, just yeah. pure, like a flow of love like I'd never experienced before. And so I think in any situation that we're met with love, you know, and I would imagine that these children are met with great love. And even the people who make that choice, they may, the culture may teach them to hate themselves for it, but they still can love themselves through yeah. those moments. And I believe that, you know, that they can still connect with God. Another contro controversial thing that's got me, um, he not only told me, but he showed me and we visited some places that the universe is full of um, intelligent beings and uh, varied life forms. And that, in fact, this world is one of the lowest of them all. And that uh, there's a lot more um, spiritual, kind, good, loving, and intelligent beings all over the universe. So you didn't put that in a sermon at your church? <laughs> no, I haven't actually. <laughs> How'd you know? <laughs> that um, wouldn't have gone over so well. <laughs> so anyways, um, when, when I couldn't, I, I mean, I ran out of questions. I just couldn't. I mean, I was starting to get kind of ridiculous. So I was just like trying to think up stuff to ask because he's, he's actually the best teacher I've ever known. He is like the, um, the model of teaching. And I must add, uses lots of AV stuff. Audio oh, visual. Yeah. <laughs> lots of descriptions. and oh, scenes. Uh, I mean, we went places and saw oh. things and oh, wow. stuff like that. Some of which was, some of which taught me not to ask certain questions. Like I asked him about the Holocaust. So we went to a death camp and got to experience the death camp and um, very painful memory. And so that, okay, no more war questions. It's like, <laughs> I remember that part of your book, though, the souls were, as soon as yeah. they were incinerated, they were just going up joyfully yeah. to heaven. Yeah. yeah. So anyways, um, ran out of stuff to say. So I said, okay, I want to go to heaven. And he's like, oh, uh, actually, you got to go back to the world and try and um, you know, have the life that you were created to be in the first place. So we had a huge argument. People always say, like, argument. I go, yeah, I argued with him as much as I could possibly argue so to go I. to heaven. <laughs> and, and he responded with kind, patient, rational reasons. And uh, just to give you a brief sample of that argument, um, I said, why would you send me back to the world? Because it's full of cruel, uh, mean people, and it's just a it's just, uh, terrible existence down there. And he said, the world, he said, that's true. There's lots of cruel, mean people. And he said, there's also very loving, beautiful people. And he said, what's in your heart is what you'll find. And if you have love in your heart, you will see the love in other people. If you have beauty in other people, you'll see the beauty in them. He said, it's what's in you is what you're going to find. And you know what? Amazingly, 
he was right again. Um, I've been doing this thing for over 30 years since, well, 33 years now, since 85. And yeah, if you seek love and beauty, you find love and beauty. If you seek cruelty and ugliness, you find cruelty and ugliness. But I'm telling you, the, the love and the beauty is in everywhere and in everyone, including people that do not strike you immediately as either loving or beautiful. That's that's a beautiful place for us to wind down because I don't want to keep you all afternoon. I could, yeah. but um, I do want to ask you one more question. Angels in human form. I think I read somewhere that you saw uh, an angel oh, yeah. in the human form later. Yeah, several, several times, yeah. Do you want um, me to talk about that? Yeah, just briefly. Okay, so, <laughs> yeah, briefly. briefly. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do a part two. <laughs> yeah. You're talking to a preacher here. Uh, <laughs> So, um, when I was recovering in what they um, called the recovery area, the hospital in Paris at Kosha, uh, a beautiful, the room was kind of dark. It was daytime, but the, the lights weren't on. The room lit up, and this young man, beautiful young man, really pretty, or handsome, I should say, um, in his like mid or late 20s, it appeared, blonde wearing um, hospital scrubs, pale green scrubs with V-neck scrub sleeves um, and sneakers. He comes into the room and he goes, Howard, how are you? I'm like, whoa. Once again, perfect English. No, kind of a, kind of a surprise in a French hospital. And, you know, I asked him who he was and he said, oh, I'm on the staff here and um, I've just come on, come in to check on you, see how you're doing. And I said, well, you know, it's like, feel like I've been run over by a truck and blah, 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 you know. He, and but the long and short of it was, he said, I'm going to be watching over you and um, I want to assure you that everything's going to be okay, but you've got a long recovery ahead of you. Um, but I will always be around. And I said, great, great. I mean, he was so kind. And I said, so what's your name? And he said, oh, don't worry about that. Um, he said, uh, you will never see me again. I said, uh, <laughs> you just said you're going to watch over me and you're going to see me through this whole recovery and you would never, you'd always be around. And now you're telling me I'm never going to see you again. He said, yes, that's, that's all true. He said, I'll be around, but you'll never see me again. And I said, I don't, that doesn't make any sense. You know, are you going to be with me? He said, I will be with you. Always know I will be with you. And I said, I will never see you again. He said, you'll never see me again. And I said, very, very confusing. I don't understand. And he said, now I have to go. So he left. The room went, when he left the room, the room went back down to drab. And I'm sitting there like, what was that? You know, what was that all about? Crazy. So even though you don't see him, do you feel him sometimes? Well, wait, let me finish. So immediately the nurse comes into the room and I said, who, what was the name of the doctor that was just here? And she said, there was nobody here. And I said, no, no, no. He, like the, the young doctor with the blonde hair and, you know, and the sneakers and stuff, you know, um, she said, there was nobody in the room. And I said, there was someone just in the room. He just left. You probably passed him coming in. And she said, my desk, is right outside this door. 
I've been sitting at that desk for a long time. Nobody has been in this room or out of this room. And I said, no, you don't understand. There was this beautiful young man who was just here visiting me. She said, no one has been in this room. I have been right here by the door. Nobody has come into the room. And I said, well, you're wrong because I saw her. And I got, and I got really upset and mm -hmm. she, she got mad at me because I was arguing with her. I mean, her English wasn't that good. My, and I spoke very poor French, but anyways, we were having this argument. And she's like, she just, she just gave up on me, you know? Um, and she left. Um, I, I believe that we all have a lot of angels. I mean, I saw, I saw my team um, and he was just part of the team. Um, yeah. When I went to the hospital, um, later on, the uh, angels kept appearing to me. And when I went to the hospital in the U.S., which I was there for a few months, um, they were making daily visits. Um, I don't know if he was, because um, usually, usually when they showed up, they were um, showing up with um, the whole glory thing. You know? So you feel them now the way I feel them. I don't yeah. see them necessarily, but just the other night, I felt two of them walking up the stairs with me and I was like, well, oh, they're yeah. here. And I know it like, you know, a wave comes into the shore. It's just this beautiful yeah. wave of energy. And that's how I describe it. Do you still yeah, feel and them? I, but, I, but I impose on them all the time. I mean, like, you know, for everything from parking spaces to <laughs> <laughs> finding discounts on something that I want to, you know, helping me to to do stuff. I mean, I, I mean, they they don't mind. I mean, they don't they're mind. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and I ask them. I ask them a lot for protection. That's one of the things they really like to do. Yes. People all the time. Whenever you're scared, whatever in your danger, ask the ask the angels to make a hedge around you. And like, um, you know, without being overly, you know, there's a, been a few times when the evil ones decide it's really tired of me and my whole act and thought it'd be better to eliminate me. And he's tried, literally tried. And uh, the angels have always come through, you know. Yeah, yeah. I feel like the more you talk publicly and the more people see you, it's almost like there's new levels of protection that you need on some level and, and to call yeah. out for that. Yeah, so I, th uh, I can't remember the politician who said, uh, you can judge your success by the enemies you make. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. me, me, me and the devil, we have, <laughs> we have a terrific relationship. Kind of a lovely thing, you know. <laughs> wow. I guess we're going to have to stop here. It's been a uh, wonderful interview. I've loved it, especially since I've read your book and you've been so such a great guest, charming, and thank you for telling me. Uh, gonna a lot get about to your stories. In, uh, Austin, yes. Uh, oh, yeah. Thank, yeah. Thank you for reminding me. And that was like part of the reason why I'm interviewing you is, um, yes, Howard Storm is going to be in Austin at the Wisdom of the Near Death Experience Conference. And this will be May 24th, 25th, 26th, I believe. And uh, this video will last much longer than that. But if you are in Austin in 2018, that would be amazing too. I will be there on Friday giving a workshop. And what day are you speaking? Um, for, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking Friday at 7 p.m. and Saturday morning at 9.15. Well, I'll be there for both times. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah, well, thank so you. Can I, 
can I give you a hug and tell you I love you? Yes, yes, yes. We can definitely hug and, and express yes. love to everyone there. And you'll understand the, yes. the spirit which it is given, right? Yes, exactly. Well, thank As you a so much. and sister in Christ or whatever, right? Yes. yes. Well, thank you, Howard. Have a great okay. day. See you in a week. All right. Thank you.